0: Well, greetings. It's so fantastic to be with you. My name's Roger, and along with my wife, Nix, we give leadership to Common Ground Bloberg. And uh, we're on week five of our Origins series. And uh, today, we look at the beautiful topic of marriage. And in specific, I want to look at women and men and the wonders of marriage. And uh, it's just so good to be able to speak into this incredibly uh, hot and important topic topic today with you. Uh, Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking into and diving into the book of Genesis, in particular chapters one through three, and looking at the origins of creation and the the meaning of life and really doing our best to understand where does this all come from? Uh, What is valuable in a life where there are so many different pictures trying to tell us what's valuable? We're going back to the source. We're going back to Genesis and discovering What really matters? Where does this all come from? And how do we make sense of a a life and a world that feels like in many ways it's gone really wild? So today, join me at the front of the aisle, at the altar, as we watch the first bride walking down the aisle towards her groom. And we get to celebrate this. I don't know about you. Can you remember the first wedding you went to? Hey, I can. Well, we're going to be at the very first wedding. Let's read together. We're in Genesis chapter 2, and uh, we are looking at verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds and the sky in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we dig into your word, we pray that you would help us to see your plan for marriage, to understand the beautiful gift of marriage. And we pray that as we unpack the scripture, that you in your beautiful creative power would create fresh worlds in us as we get to see your way and your wisdom. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we are in the first wedding. I don't know if you know this, but this is God walking his bride Eve down the aisle to Adam. This is a beautiful moment in human history. We get to see the first wedding day. Now let me show you a picture of my very first wedding day. This is me looking at my bride Nick's walking down the aisle. It's a moment I can never forget. It's a moment Nix, I hope, will never forget. It's a moment that speaks of two people in this passage becoming one flesh, being drawn together for a lifelong union. (laughs) We read in the book of Genesis here the very first moment this happened. Where God in his creative genius pulls together this thing called marriage. And he beautifully displays what it's all about as he brings Adam and Eve together. And we get to see uh, uh, Adam experiencing the elation of watching his bride coming towards him and the wonder of what it means to be married. I don't know about you, but the the, the, the sort of concept of marriage has been radically uh, uh, sort of heightened over the last while. I think of COVID if you're married, uh, this lockdown season, what it's done to many marriages, the amount of pressure that it's put on you if you're a married person, whether it's having the kids at home for extended periods of time and what that's meant to you as a married couple, or whether it's been financial pressures that have been put on and have meant that you as a marriage have felt some of those extra pressures, or if it's just... Just that added proximity to one another that has forced you to realize that there is stuff that needs to be dealt with. All of the above has been true for next to myself when it comes to marriage. Or or what about if you're a a single person? You're not married, but this lockdown period has exacerbated some of your sense of loneliness maybe or, or longing or even just looking into the concept of marriage and the big whys behind it. So many of my single and married friends have looked into marriage and have found themselves really uh, contemplating freshly why it's so crucial. Hey, or, or maybe uh, just in culture in general. you think of how this debate around marriage and who can and can't be married has been heightened as social media have uh, had a frenzy around all kinds of human rights. This has been at the center. Marriage has been at the center of so many big conversations that many of us have been having it's featured prominently in all sectors of society and and I think it's really important therefore that we look into Genesis and we look into the very beginning of marriage and we begin to deepen our understanding for the why of marriage today I want to call us into uh, simply three things I want us to beware of something, I want us to savor something, and I want us to cling to something. Beware, savor, cling. Three parts to my message, and uh, we're going to look into this passage and hopefully come out with something to beware, a a warning. So should we start there? Let's look at something to beware of. Beware idolatry. Beware idolatry. don't know if you picked up in this passage, but this is one of the first moments In the Bible, where it's no longer a kind of narrative feel, it's broken into a new form of speech. It's poetry. I don't know if you saw that, but but literally, Adam breaks into poetry. The moment he sees Eve walking down the aisle, he's not like me who simply just cried some, some tears. Adam finds a moment to break into poetry poetry and he looks at his bride Eve coming towards him and he says this is now bone of my bones flesh of my flesh and he writes a poem of delight and joy as he sees the wonder of marriage and the provision of God in this beautiful wife he's been given this is what we're witnessing the first marriage is something precious and beautiful we know that the first uh, five days of creation God has been building to this moment where he he creates human beings and it's a kind of pinnacle moment. Everything till then was good, according to God. When he created mankind, he said, it's very good. And when he created marriage, no doubt in his heart, he was going, this is fantastic. And according to Adam's words, his poem, go look at it. You'll see the, uh, it's written differently. It's a, it's a poem of joy. And God is going, this is fantastic. Marriage is good. That's what we're picking up. Uh, uh, the language that Adam uses here he says uh, at last at last he's he's looking and saying finally I've found a kind of match I've found a partner to do life with that's kind of the language that we're looking at in our English versions it normally says this is now this is now a bone on my bones. But, but that language doesn't do justice to the, the depths of what he's feeling. He's really saying, finally, I've found it. I've found what I've been looking for in a, in a partner to do life with, to cause human flourishing with. She's what I've been looking for. Isn't it a magnificent passage of Scripture? Isn't it amazing when you uh, cut out some of the pain and, and the, the jadedness that comes along with many of our experiences of marriage, whether it's our own or our parents or our family members, to see the pure first marriage and go, wow, such potential. Such promise, such purpose, such amazing design by God that this man gets to see the glory of his wife coming together and this union that brings them together to change the world and bring about human flourishing. It's in Tim Keller's words, this discovery that Adam has, it's almost as if he's saying, as I see you, I, I now know who I am. I've found myself in you. I'm not just coming to another. I'm coming to someone who is helping me to see who I am. At last, finally, by discovering you, I find out who I am. That's magnificent. It's the gift of God to provide another, to help us to have a mirror to our souls, to discover better who we are and who we're created to be. This is in in Eden. This is in this Perfection. This is a moment of great joy. But if we take a sober little look at every beautiful thing God creates, and we juxtapose it against a fallen world in which we all live, I think it's safe to say that every single time that human beings get a good thing that's created by God, we have this amazing ability to distort it into something to serve us. We have this ability to, to turn something that's very good into a kind of God. That, that, that's what idolatry is all about. I think of um, Romans chapter 1, verse 25, which says it like this. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. I don't know if you you picked that up, but but this is the human tendency. Romans chapter 1 explains what humans have been doing all along. We take good stuff that God created and we turn it into a God thing. And I think in society we've done this with marriage over and over and over again. A beautiful gift of marriage. I think of how singles uh, have this ability to look towards a future marriage and think that when they are married, they will enjoy the main meal of life. Up until now, so many singles believe that they're eating the the sort of hors d'oeuvres of life until one day they get married and they get to enjoy the main meal and such an unhelpful way to look at life. But if marriage is idolized as a single person, which I did for many years of my life, wasting so much of the present moments I got to live in, waiting for some time where I potentially could get married. I could find that hoped fulfillment in another person who could satisfy, who could solve many problems that I was facing. Here we as singles tend to idolize marriage. But, but, but it's not only for singles, it's true for married people as well. And it's worth noting this, by the way. You see, for, for, for married people, if we have or do idolize marriage, we can do one of two things. One, we can either put too much pressure on our spouse, i.e. we lean on them to give us the joy and the happiness that we only can find in God. We'd look at our spouse to, to make us happy rather than to the Creator, who's primarily meant to make us happy and the weight that we put on them can tend to crush them. Such a painful experience in so many marriages when that disappointment that we feel towards our spouse gets put onto the spouse, and they live under the crippling weight of our disappointment or our unmet expectations. The flip side can be true as well, is that we could have such a fantastically exciting marriage that we just exclude everyone else out. Maybe we have our two kids and we basically have the mantra, us four and no more. And we just live in our little bubble of joy, excluding the world from any of the blessing and the joy that could be splashing off of our lives. And we tend to idolize marriage by shutting it off and sharing it with no one. I don't know where you might land on this potential, but, but the idolatry of marriage can exist even in married people. I, I suggest the idolatry of marriage can even exist in our culture. Even in our culture, where we find ourselves in a, in a society, especially in the West, in a very, very new experiment where we are trying to deconstruct marriage from its traditional Judeo-Western view and to reconstruct it into a whole new way of understanding marriage and, and, and redesigning uh, marriage in terms of different gender expectations and different things. Why? Because somewhere in the human heart is this Desire, this notion that if we can find another, if we can find another partner to live with forever, to love us unconditionally, we'll be happy. It's not true if you're single. It's not true if you're married. It's not true if you're trying to redefine marriage to suit whatever personal orientation you may feel. It's not true. The, the danger for every single human being who lives in God's creation is that we idolize marriage and we look to it to do what only God can do. Hey, beware the idolatry of marriage. Beware of it. Beware of it in the church, forcing people to feel like they're only somebody if they have somebody. It's, it's unhelpful. We need to make sure that we as the church are creating healthy cultures where all different people in all different stages of uh, relationship statuses are loved and are feeling part of the family. Hey, we must be careful. We must beware idolatry. What happens when we idolize things? Singles rush into unwise relationships. Marries Married people wall up, blow up, or shut up. Or ship out. And in society, people fight for a relationship status achieved when there is available to them a free relationship status to be received. Hey, I hope I can explain this to you at the end of the talk. Just stick with me. But, but let's beware idolatry. Let's beware loving marriage more than God designed it to be. And more than we love God himself. Hey, second, point, second point. Savor God's pattern. Savor God's pattern. Look at what happens in verse 18. It says this, The Lord God said, And it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, we need to slow down here because this word helper has been misused all over the show. And uh, ladies, i got some, some helpful tips for you here. But, but let's stick with the point here. Helper. A suitable Helper. That This word is actually often used in the Old Testament to speak of military reinforcements. Listen to me carefully. So often when God's help comes to the nation of Israel and to bring strength and military power to them, this same word helper is used. God comes in as a helper to Israel. Hey, maybe a little different to the way you read the word helper in the English language, right? When you hear the word helper, it's a little demeaning. Slightly derogatory and uh, certainly weaker. But that's not what's happening here at all. This is God looking at the man and going, You're not complete alone. You need some complementary strength. You need some complementary help. You have this radical mandate to cause human flourishing, to have dominion over the earth, to bring about life and flourishing in the world, and you need help. So ladies, next time your husband gets a cheeky little reading of that scripture and uses it against you, you tell him that there is some military might that is in you that will be used against him if he uses that text against you ever again. Helpful? I I hope so. Here's the thing. We're called by God to see that there is a pattern here. There's a pattern of suitable, complementary support that's going on. Now, think about it. I don't know if you've been tracking with us up till now, but think about the pattern of creation. God creates the heavens and the earth. Remember the Bible project explained it to us like this, the land and the sky. There's all these complementary pairs that carry on through days one through five. I Think about the, um, the, the various things, the light and the dark. The day and the night. These are all complementary pairs that are being used by God to do what? To create life. You need day and night to create life. The plants need rest and yet they need the photosynthesis during the day. Human beings need to rest at night but to labor during the day. You can't have all day and all night. You need a combination of both if you're going to have life and flourishing. God has been working in complementary pairs all the way through the book of Genesis until he comes to the pinnacle of his creation when he gets to human beings and he gets to men and women. And he makes another powerful and beautiful complementary pair. This is what we often call complementarity or complementarianism. Uh, don't, Don't get caught up in the language. The point is this, is that there is a pattern whereby two uh, different parts created by God come together to create life. (laughs) And by the way, this is really logical to most cultures around the world. To to most children, it's really logical. Uh, And and that this pattern is God creating men and women to come together to create life, to create human flourishing. And that's God's pattern for marriage in creating life and flourishing. that's That's the thing that God calls us to in Christian marriage, in in Christian union, that two people would complement one another in their differences to bring about life and flourishing. So let me explain a few things. Firstly, it's really important to understand that in this teaching, and and I want to give a few applications uh, to, to this basic teaching of what is complementarity, what is complementarianism. I think it's important, first of all, to just say that men and women are equal in dignity and worth. This is a fundamental basic to the teachings of Scripture, but especially when understanding or teaching that, you know, men and women are are different in any way. This does not speak of value or worth at all. Men and women equal in value and worth. And I think it's really important on the one hand that we resist any stereotyping that can be overly pushed. Between uh, pushing women to, to have certain roles and men to have certain roles that have been historically and culturally assumed. I think the other side is equally dangerous that we simply just dissolve uh, genders into one another and see no differences. No, we must resist stereotyping and dissolving and celebrate differences and celebrate that genders are unique and created by God to complement each other and both are beautiful and equally filled with dignity and worth hey secondly men and women have complementary differences that are designed to express the image of god they're designed to to reveal who god is and what he's like I don't know if you've picked this up, but even when Jesus uh, sometimes speaks about his love for the world, he looked over Jerusalem he said, how often I'd love to gather you together like a mother hen gathers her chicks. In the heart of God is a very uh, paternal and yet also maternal ability to draw people in. And when husbands and wives, men and women work together, they have this amazing ability to fully express the full-orbed love of God that he has for humanity. All men or all women would be a lopsided expression of who God is and, and what he's like. We again probably do need to avoid stereotyping too far in terms of saying that uh, all women are you know, necessarily meant to be uh, nurturers and looking after children and all men are only meant to be protectors and providers. Hey, that said, we should avoid totally dissolving any uh, encouragements towards men to to be brave and to protect. And, And it's going to be hard to stop my three daughters having this instinct to always want to nurture little babies. I don't know where it comes from, but our house is awash with little baby dolls and I can't stop it. Here's the thing. We are called to celebrate uniqueness and difference and to affirm that God has created our genders in special and important ways. But here's an important thing about marriage in particular. Marriage in particular. And I want you to listen carefully. If you're married or you're thinking about marriage, this is going to help you resist idolatry in so many ways. God never designed marriage primarily to make you happy, but primarily to make you happy holy. If I could tell you how many marriages I've seen saved through the fire when they understood this very truth, that in fact, it's in our complementary differences that God has given us each other to help us to become more like Him, to become more uh, like the the, the Jesus that has been revealed in Scripture. You see, marriage has this ability to uh, cause our spouse to be like a kind of mirror that is kind of scary, right? When you look in the mirror and you've got no clothes on, you're like, "Oh, I don't. I'm not proud of everything, right?" But a spouse is held up against our lives to reveal who we really are, to reveal who we really are, and that and that mirror has the ability to 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 then turn into a cheerleader, to to push us onwards and forwards into becoming more like Jesus. That's what all relationships are meant to be like within the church. But spouses in particular are meant to be your primary disciple makers. I've had married people come to me sometimes and go, I need someone to disciple me. I find myself going, Hey, where's your spouse, dude? Hey, where's your spouse? They're the person who's going to help you become like Jesus. Your primary task if you're married is to help your spouse become like Jesus. How? By being a mirror to help them see some of their blind spots, but primarily to be a cheerleader to move them towards the purposes of Jesus and become more like Him. Think about that. You're, you're, uh, you're a mirror and a cheerleader. And you need to be cheering more than you're being a mirror so that you can buy and build a bridge of trust to become a mirror to show, hey, there are some blind spots. But here's the thing. Marriage isn't primarily given to you to make you happy, but to make you holy. Holy is simply a word for become more like God, to become more like Jesus in love and sacrifice. Hey, and then finally... Ephesians 5 gives us a clue in understanding some of these differences, especially in marriage, is that leadership comes with sacrifice. Leadership comes with sacrifice. This language that we've read in Genesis 2, and then when you read it in Ephesians 5, hey, it can be quite hard to swallow if you're a lady in the West right now. Uh, first of all, you see that it t- tells us in Ephesians 5, wives submit to your husbands. And, you know, Genesis 2 talks about a suitable helper. Let me just give some clarity to this just for a moment because it's so important to get this. We- we've already seen suitable helper is actually suitable strength and complementary strength. But actually Ephesians 5, the first, uh, uh, one of the things you need to understand is that just before it says wives submit to your husbands, It says, actually, all of us should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you want to follow Jesus, you're following the cruciform life. It's a life of sacrifice. It's a life that says, less of me and more of you. I want to be the kind of person who submits to and defers to. It's not about me getting my way. It's about me serving others into into flourishing. That's the, the most important thing to understand. But then the other one is this. Is that if you want to be a leader, if you want to even dream of having anyone submit to you, especially husbands, then the, cl- then the clue is this in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You don't earn any right to be the leader until you choose the cruciform life of sacrifice. Sacrifice is your right to leadership in your family, in your home. If you're willing to say, you know what, I'm not choosing you to be vulnerable first. I will share my wounds first. I will share how I have insecurities because of what happened to me when I was seven years old. I will share that I need help and I need assistance because I'm feeling like maybe I'm not providing enough. And so I need your encouragement and your care because there is stuff in me that makes me compare with other people. Hey, husbands, learn to sacrifice before you demand the right to be the leader. We, we, we learn to, to give of ourselves before we ask to get anything. Uh, This is the crucial key that so many people miss when they talk about leadership in the home and men leading and wives uh, following. Hey, men, could we take our cue today to be sacrificial? I think anyone would be glad to submit to someone who models after Jesus and says, I'll take the bullet first. I will sacrifice first. And I will open up a place for others to feel safe in a life of honesty and vulnerability. Hey, that's the call. That's the qualification For leadership. It also leads me to my third and uh, probably most important point cling to the cross. Cling to the cross. Verse 24 and 25 say it like this That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. A little side point here, which is really important this is the concept of leaving and cleaving. A husband leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife. You create a new culture. This is so crucial in our season of, uh, of human history. We so often have our, our ties to our family and still in-laws and, and whatever else, telling, uh, setting the culture and setting the tone. If you're married, you set the culture. You set the tone. The other thing I've noticed, by the way, in many marriages is two separate financial worlds, husband and wife. Hey, the, 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 the Bible says it clearly. They become one flesh your generosity, the way that you live out your call to each other. You may not have one bank account, but you certainly share in everything you do and everything you earn, and you learn to love the world as one unit. Hey, mom doesn't have different rules to dad and different standards to dad. You love and you lead your family together as one unit, and you find unity in that, and then you move into the world as you parent, as you care, as you love and you go on mission. But the most important thing, I want to look at here is verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They were naked and they felt no shame. Can you even conceive of that experience? Just for a moment, slow down and consider a life where you feel no shame. You might not even be married and you know that it's hard to imagine a life that feels no shame. The the, the shame of not being the kind of friend that you know you should have been. The, the kind of person you, you, you wish you were, but you know you're not. In marriage, the, the kind of spouse you know you ought to be. I know this feeling really well, and I don't know any spouse who doesn't. And, and, and the kind of feeling that maybe you just aren't the kind of spouse your spouse hoped for. This is, this is a shameful experience. This is what shame is all about. It's that feeling of inadequacy that you need to hide. What's Adam and Eve's secret how were they naked and yet feeling no shame? They, they had nothing to hide and were still enjoying this deep pleasure with one another and with God. How, where does this come from? I think of how COVID over this last 12 months has probably brought forward all the scheduled midlife crises for the next decade have been brought forward into the last six months. Whether it's been considering a new career, a, a new country, a new companion, a, you name it. You know what it's been for you. I know what it's been for me. We've all had this this thing brought forward and, and it's left us feeling like shame has has come over us. Are we still the person we thought we were? Have we let go of our convictions? And that's fed into marriages and relationships and caused all kinds of complexity. Paul gives us a clue in Ephesians 5 as to how we could... Live a life free from shame. He, he says it like this in verse 32. Where he says, this is a profound mystery. He's talking about marriage. But he says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Uh, marriage is amazing, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. You see, what he's trying to say here is he's saying, you can't get rid of your shame by just getting married and trying to fix it with another person or finding some romantic love or finding a life partner. It's never going to happen. It's never going to cover over your shame. You need a whole new solution. And Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. You see, Genesis says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother. There's no better story of a man leaving his father then Jesus Christ himself, who left the comforts of heaven to move to earth. He, he left the comforts of his own space to go love another. Christ came to love the church. If you feel like you, 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 you're not loved, you need to understand that God himself left his father and came in an all-out mission on, of love to show that he cares about you. He loves you. He loves you more than any spouse or partner ever could. He left his father to come to love us. What a beautiful, beautiful thought. And as united to his wife and the two become one flesh. You see, what Jesus did is that he became naked. You see, the, the Adam and Eve were naked and felt no shame. We're naked and we feel shame all the time. But here's the story of the gospel. is that God comes to earth, leaves his father and his mother, and then is beautifully in love in a gruesome way put on the cross. He does for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves is get rid of our shame. How does he do it? He gets put naked on a cross. He gets shamed on our behalf so that we could walk shame-free. In our marriage, in our singleness, in our divorcedness, in whatever situation, whatever orientation you experience in your life, you need not feel shame because of your own solutions you can find. You can live a shame-free life because you come to the one who was pinned on a cross naked and he was filled with scorn and shame from everyone. And yet he took that and he made it available to us so that his shame was absorbed and absorbed our shame. And three days later, he rises again, and Easter is coming for us to celebrate that he is resurrected. And then the Bible says that two become one flesh. And you know what the beauty of knowing Jesus is? Is that we are united to him. And that means that no marriage could ever save us because we have been united to Jesus. His death becomes our death to sin. His life he lived becomes our life in the kingdom. His resurrection becomes our guaranteed resurrection when we die. We are united, one flesh to Jesus. I hope that's true for you. Let me address each of us as I close. Maybe if you're married, have you been putting too much weight on marriage, on your spouse? Has it maybe caused you to, to put too much pressure on who your spouse must be and how they must perform? Hey, could you be trusting Jesus more and, and helping your spouse and being a greater cheerleader? Maybe. Could you be a little less critical and a little more loving? I know that's true for me. Hey, if you're married, if you put too much hope in your marriage and haven't reached out to be a more loving kind of person, maybe because you've idolized marriage and you haven't worshipped Jesus. Hey, what about for the singles? I know this is difficult and tender. I don't know what attractions you experience. I don't know what loneliness you're going through. One thing I do know is that marriage won't solve your problems. Marriage is a good gift in God's time. But while you're single, I implore you, To enjoy Jesus, to be united to Him, to let Him love you, to enjoy the wonder of church community, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers. I was single for many years and know what it was like to enjoy the intimacy of God and others that actually marriage sometimes can't even provide. Don't idolize marriage. Enjoy God and see marriage as a gift in the right time. Hey, maybe... You're looking into the claims of Jesus. You're just totally uncertain about who God is and what he's like. And, and I want to use marriage just as a, as a kind of way in to help you see that there's so many things we look to to save us, whether it's our intellect, whether it's our own strength, whether it is another person or our view on marriage or what we believe that human rights ought to be. But I don't want you to die on that hill. I want you to understand that Jesus died on a hill for you and that he loves you more than you can imagine. And that as you trust him and you understand his love, he makes sense of all the others, all the other big questions that that fill our hearts. Today, I want to encourage you, trust Jesus. Just pray a simple prayer of saying, Jesus, I want to know you better. I want to walk with you. I want to learn more about you. And if you're feeling really filled with faith and trust, to say, Jesus, I trust you with my life and I want to walk with you. I want to serve you. I'm going to pray a brief prayer, and then we'll be done. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray today that we would be those who see marriage as a gift, not a God. I pray for married couples today, God, that they would know your grace in learning to love each other like you, Jesus, love us. In sacrifice and in humility and in love. I pray for singles, Lord, that are uh, either maybe divorced or are confused or are uncertain or disillusioned by marriage and all that it comes with. I pray that they too would be freed from the idolatry of marriage, but also the, the diminishing or the, the hatred for marriage. That it would be in a right place. That it would be seen as a good gift in the right time, but not ultimate. And that there would be a satisfaction in relationship with you and in relationships with others that are healthy healthy platonic, and really about uh, honest care. And Jesus, for those people who are contemplating uh, you and serving you, I pray, Jesus, that you would help them to see that you are as good as you say you are and that your burden is easy and your yoke is light. In Jesus' name, amen.